The ballot for the College Football Hall of Fame class of 2022 has been released. 78 former FBS players are on the ballot, which makes them all eligible for the Hall of Fame. Two of those players are legendary Sooners, Josh Heupel and Roy Williams. When I saw the news that Heupel and Williams were on the ballot, my first thought was, wait a second, those guys aren't already in the College Football Hall of Fame? It was at that point I started to dig. Now, apparently, Heupel and Williams first appeared on the ballot last year, but failed to make the class of 2021. By the way, their head coach did make the class of 2021, Bob Stoops. Stoops being a first ballot Hall of Famer was obviously a no-brainer. But you know what? Roy Williams and Josh Heupel should have also been first ballot Hall of Famers. Now, this isn't some emotional crimson-colored glasses appeal. I've got a pretty solid reason as to why both those players deserve to go into the Hall of Fame in the same class as their head coach, Bob Stoops. And that reason is Vince Young. Vince Young was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 2019. That was the first time he was eligible. Of course, Vince Young's a Hall of Famer. Everybody remembers that USC game where he single-handedly won Texas the national title. That's Young's lasting legacy. But come on, we all know one game doesn't get you inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. Let's check out the criteria for getting into the Hall. First, you must have been a first-team All-American. Players become eligible for the Hall 10 years after their final year of college eligibility or after they retire if they played pro football. The Hall also takes into account your post-football record as a citizen, academic honors, and a college degree. That's it. That's the criteria. So let's go down Vince Young's college career. He was a consensus All-American once in 2005. He was the Heisman runner-up, won Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year, won the Maxwell and Davey O'Brien trophies, and of course, won a national title. That was all in 2005 one season. His first two years at Texas weren't anything special, completed fewer than 60% of his passes, threw almost as many interceptions as touchdowns, and just ran a bunch. That was Young's game. Now, Grant can provide more context of his career a little bit later, because I'll ask him about this as the show gets going. Vince Young became a first ballot Hall of Famer for essentially one incredible season. Now to Josh Heupel and Roy Williams. Let's start with Heupel. Like Vince Young, Heupel was a consensus All-American one time in 2000. Like Vince Young, Heupel was the Heisman runner-up. Like Vince Young, Heupel won the Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year. Heupel did not win the Maxwell and Davey O'Brien trophies like Vince Young did. However, Heupel did win the Walter Camp Award and the AP Player of the Year. And like Vince Young, Heupel won a national championship. Now, let's be fair and balanced here. I think it's objectively true that Vince Young's 2005 season was a lot more impressive than Josh Heupel's 2000 season. There's no arguing that. However, I would argue that Heupel's one additional year at Oklahoma in 1999 was objectively better than both of Young's additional years at Texas. If we're taking the whole career into account, that needs to be said. All right, what about Roy Williams? Williams was a consensus first-team All-American in 2001. Williams won the Nagurski Trophy in 2001. That goes to the nation's best defensive player. He also won the Thorpe Award in 2001, which goes to the nation's best defensive back. 
Williams was the 2001 Big 12 Player of the Year and a two-time first-team All-Big 12 selection. And, of course, we all know that Williams won a national championship at OU in 2000. Now, if Vince Young's college resume was worthy of first-ballot Hall of Fame status, I'd really like for someone to explain to me why Josh Heupel and Roy Williams did not earn first-ballot status. We'll have to wait until early 2022 for the next class to be announced to see if this error has been rectified. I'm Lee Benson, and this is West of Everest. Lehman showing blitz. There's the blitz! Touchdown, Lehman! Touchdown, Oklahoma! Williams got him on the blitz! Lehman on the pick! OU is going to win it again! You all know that play. Roy Williams, Superman, clinched Oklahoma's win over Texas back in 2001. Obviously one of the most iconic plays in Oklahoma football history, one of the most iconic plays in OU Texas history, and dare I say, one of the most iconic plays in college football history. Perhaps, maybe, who knows. Uh, What's up, everybody? Once again, I am Lee Benson. Welcome back to West of Everest. It's been a little short of a month since our last episode, and I got to say the time off has been nice and relaxing, and it's helped energize me for this episode today. So let's bring in Grant to see if he feels the same way. Grant, welcome back. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate it. Um, I, I'm feeling pretty similar. Um, there's been some thing. There's been sort of some talking points and stuff that have happened. Like I think today, that's definitely providing some good fodder for us to talk about. Um, and then, of course, I think everybody's got an opinion on on you know the the TV time slots and and everything that went down with that. So yeah, I mean, right, kind of right before we got on here, we we're talking about how. I think we got uh, we got quite a bit of content here, quite a bit of stuff that we can sift through for everybody, for sure. So putting into more context Vince Young's career at Texas, because you're more of a history type guy than me. We all know his 2005 season was awesome, but his first two years at Texas, I mean, they he was just – I know he won, I think, Big 12 freshman of the year or something or offensive freshman of the year, but looking at his numbers his first two seasons – he was essentially a running quarterback that wasn't very good passing, and his, his stats weren't all that great. Uh, am I missing anything there? Do you remember? No, no. I as And, of course, this is with OU shaded glasses here. His first two seasons at, at Texas, or the first two seasons that he was a thing and he was their prominent quarterback, he is not someone who scared me in any sort of realistic way. All right, but he makes first ballot Hall of Fame status. It's deserved based on the criteria. Absolutely, absolutely deserved. And so my argument is that based on the resumes of Josh Heupel, Roy Williams, and Vince Young, that I think Heupel and Williams should have been first ballot Hall of Famers if you're going to go based off of the resumes. But you slightly agree and also slightly disagree with that, I understand. Yeah, I mean, I think Roy Williams is is surefire. I think should have been first ballot. I, he's definitely one of the best safeties who has ever played college football. Um, this other thing I'm pretty emphatic about, Josh Heupel's not a college football Hall of Famer. Um, I think it's it's easy for an OU fan to get emotional about that because we remember the 2000 season so fondly and the role that he played, you know, especially of being a leader and being the face of that team. Um, in terms of his effectiveness and in terms of his ability to do things that other people couldn't do, he, he, he was kind of an average college quarterback. Um, 
And, you know, I, of course, we all watched 2000. We all saw, you know, some of the pretty deep balls that he threw. Uh, but he, he was really more of a leader and a guy who got you into the right play. He was much more of a game manager than I think people or OU fans would, would care to admit. Yeah, a lot of it stems from the fact that Oklahoma forever was a wishbone type team that ran the ball a lot. And when Bob Stoops came in and Mike Leach was there in 99, it was all different. They threw the ball around. So it was he was the first OU quarterback that was changing the game, changing the way Oklahoma played offense. And he was really good his first year in 1999. And his his first season at Oklahoma statistically was better than his national championship year in 2000 when he was the Heisman runner-up and just to back that up he he had 30 touchdown passes and 15 picks in 99 and his touchdowns decreased immensely in 2000 he only had 20 touchdown passes in 2000 and threw the same amount of picks 20 to 15 touchdown interception ratio that's not good that that that's not a good stat for quarterbacks and so if you're going to look based off of straight statistics in the 2000 season you're right I mean obviously Vince Young had a much better year and if that's the reason why Vince Young is in the college football hall of fame which it obviously is then Josh Heupel's one season does not stack up to Vince Young statistically however if you look at resume and awards and, and things of that nature they do st- st- stack up to Vince Young and so you have to ask yourself are you more into the statistics or are you more into awards and the way he was perceived throughout the college football landscape in 2000? And that's the argument you have to make. And I, th- I think there's a good argument either way. But for the sake of my argument, I'm going to go with his resume of being Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year, Heisman runner-up, AP Player of the Year, Walter Camp, won a national title, all pretty similar to the awards that Vince Young got. What do you say to that? I, you know, every season is different in college football. Different awards have different contexts. Um, I, you know, I, I, I love Josh Heupel, obviously, for the role that he played in that season. I, I just, I, I don't think it's controversial at all to say that he was not an outstanding superstar player that everyone was terrified of that season. That's just not the case. Um, everyone respected him. And of course, I do think, um, his ability to lead in that situation, to lead OU to a national title for the first time in 15 years after going through the 90s, which was terrible. Also starting out um, outside of the preseason top 20 and then leading the team to an undefeated season. Um, but I think every OU fan knows that that, that season wasn't just Josh Heupel. There were, there were a lot, a lot of players on that team that kind of made their mark and had their moment in that season. And I, I think because because that season is, was so kind of was so storybook and it's sort of it's it, it still feels kind of like an outlier over the last handful of years the last handful of decades I think it's pretty easy for people to forget that in the second half of that season Josh Heupel per, just was not particularly good um, after after Red October he was pretty ordinary that season and some of that had to do with injury he was definitely injured at the end of the season with his throwing arm Um but also for the most part, I mean, it was, he just, they kind of got figured out in the second half of that season. That, that team was about the defense. That team was about Torrance Marshall and Rocky Kalmus and Roy Williams. Um, love Josh Heupel to death. Love Josh Heupel to death. But if Sam Bradford was the quarterback of that team, they would have won. They still would have gone 13 or no, and they would have been, and they would have beaten people by more. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good, uh, 
it's a good take. I, I think this is an interesting subject because I think it can go either way. There's arguments on both sides. And uh, we both agree that Roy Williams definitely should have been first ballot Hall of Fame. So I think that's a way to, to uh, put a period on that topic and move on to the next thing. I just wanted to kind of get through that a little bit because I know you had a little bit more context for the history of Vince Young's seasons and also obviously uh, Oklahoma. And, I mean, we all remember that. Uh, it, obviously, you and I were, were children when that happened. And people that listen to this podcast that are around our age are the same way. But there's people that listen to this podcast that are older that I'm sure rem- remember that 2000 year a lot more vividly. And it, you mentioned it's like a storybook year. It's crazy to think it's uh, I mean, it's been more than 20 years since that season. I guess it has been 20 years since that season. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's the classic human thing where you don't think about it when you're a teenager and you're in college. But then you get to the point you're like, well, I guess I'm not that young anymore. I'm kind of old now, but you don't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but it was. It was a long time ago, and uh, there's it's kind of a non sequitur. I'm just kind of rambling, but um, I wanted to point that out. Oh yeah, I feel that every day. You're not alone in that. <laughs> feel that every day. Uh, all right. So originally we were gonna start the show and talk about all the 11 a.m. kickoffs and that fun stuff because I actually did some research on it and figured out how many 11 a.m. kickoffs Oklahoma has had compared to other elite college football teams and college football playoff type teams. We're, we're still going to talk about that, but later in, the sh- <clears throat> later in the show we'll talk about that because uh, Pete Thamel at Yahoo Sports put out a story late on Monday night about the possible future of the college football playoff. And I shared the story on the West of Evers Facebook page. Hopefully you all had time to take a look and read it. And if not, it's no big deal because we'll pretty much summarize it for you all here. Now, Thamel reports that Yahoo spoke to more than a dozen stakeholders in the college football playoff, university officials, athletic directors, media executives, and others around college sports. And amid those conversations, there's been expressed there's been expressed openness towards a 12-team playoff as the most likely result of playoff expansion. Now, how would a 12-team playoff work? You get automatic bids for the Power 5 conferences. Thamel says that would juice up the conference championship games because then they would be playing games at that point. Then there would be one automatic bid for the highest-ranked group of five school, and then after that, you'd have six at-large bids to fill out the 12-team playoff. Once the playoff is set, then the question is, how does the tournament play out? And in Thamel's report, he says the details of all of that is still being ironed out or would need to be ironed out. But the thought is that the top four teams would get a bye, and then teams five through eight would host teams nine through 12 at home sites. After that, the bowl system could potentially fill in from there, with the expectation that many of the high-end bulls in the system now would still remain. And now this part of the whole thing, you might be thinking to yourself, uh, this part of the 12-team idea does have some issues, which we're going to hit on here in a little bit after I get through the rest of the details. Now, what about the timetable of everything? Now, the current 14 playoff system is going to stay the same for the upcoming season and also the 2022 season. So no changes are going to be made before the next two years. When it comes to planning the future of the playoff, FAMO reports that meetings are going to happen in July of this year when the four-member group who's been doing research on playoff expansion reports its findings to the CFP Management Committee. This four-member group 
consists of SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby, Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick, and Mountain West Commissioner Craig Thompson. Further, Thamel's report says that there'll be a meeting for two days, July 17th and July 18th, and then it's expected that they'll all come up with a singular recommendation for what the playoff will look like moving forward, and then they'll pitch that idea to the CFP Board of Managers the following week in July. That board consists of 11 presidents and chancellors from FBS, confer- FBS conferences and, of course, also Notre Dame. Now, this is when the future of the playoff will likely be determined, but Thamel does report that nothing final will be announced or agreed upon. All right, I know that's that was probably really boring, but if you hadn't read it yet, hopefully that was informative. Hopefully you're also with us. I'll throw it to you now, Grant, your reaction to the Pete Thamel story. Okay, so instant reaction uh, when I first saw it was surprise. Surprise that it was the 12-team structure uh, that their reporting seems to be the most likely. Um, I always perhaps cynically assumed that it would be a very, very slow, slow drip. I always assumed the next one would probably be six and then eight and then 12 and then maybe what I, what you and I think would be the best, which is a 24-teamer, which we'll get into very much later. Um, so that that's where I was. I was surprised that it seems like the, um, I'm not going to say the consensus, but these guys' sources are saying that if they do expand, that's the most likely. That I was I was surprised a little bit. And with that surprise... Can't, I, I'm happy about that. That's good because that's that's even closer uh, to our 24 team vision, which I think would be the best. Um, having that been said, you know when you do read the story, there's some things in there that I def I definitely have some nits to pick in there. Um, the concept of those top four teams not playing a home game is not acceptable to me. Um, that I, I in, in this scenario, that the first two rounds need to be on home sites. Um, and then you can, and then, you know, for the final four, you can go to the, the same setup you have now with the, the rotating bowls and then just the, the regular, uh, national championship game. Um, because I, you know, I, I think the, the visual of having a playoff game on a home campus is one of the reasons why you go to this. Um, I, that's, that's one of the chief reasons that you go to this. Um, because I think, you know, one of my complaints about the bowl system and, and just recently, uh, the playoff system uh, is that I, I I do think neutral sites absolutely kill atmosphere and they kill um, excitement for games. Um, part of the reason why we love college football is the tradition, the rituals, the pageantry that we have on home stadiums, home fields. It just feels feels more real. Uh, it feels like you're kind of in a sanctuary when you're at a home field. I think that's a very special thing that the powers that be in college football should try every single way to maximize. Um, and, and that's kind of where I am with the home games. Having that been said, you know, I mean, one of the more unique aspects of college football, I think this is one of the reasons why college football is great, um, is that you do have to balance the regional differences and the different interests that the different conferences have. Um, and it's just reality. You kind of have to just radically accept reality here is that any sort of playoff structure upcoming is going to be a compromise of all of those competing visions. Um, and so when I saw that 12 teamer in my mind, I'm like, oh, if that's where they are right now in terms of a compromise, that's, I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, that's, that's quite a bit of progress. So, um, like I said, yeah, I I think we both would prefer the 24 teamer, 
But when I see 12 right away, my initial thought is, man, I had already mentally prepared myself for this to be a drip by drip, something that we're going to be talking about for multiple decades. But this is way closer to what we want already. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that this is what happens. Yeah, I, I share a lot of your sentiments. My first thought was, wow, 12. Okay. I, cause we've talked about this before on the podcast. I'm with you. I, the way college football has been from the beginning of time, it's always very slow to adapt and change and evolve. And so I'm, I'm with you. I thought when the expansion would happen at max, the next thing we'd go to is something like eight. And again, mainly because for whatever reason, the number eight has been popular amongst general college football media, I guess, and probably fans and stuff too. So yes, I'm, I'm happy that the number is 12. And, and you said something about compromise that kind of piqued my interest. If, if your thought is that there's going to be compromise between everybody and 12 is the number that potentially a uh, negotiation or just not even a no negotiation at this point, because I know it's just been a few you know, handful of people that are doing this research. But if they think 12 is maybe the number who know maybe like at one point they they said 16 or something and like they're like ah maybe maybe we can go down to 12 you know like so it, but the scary thing would be that 12 is the high number right now and then compromise will get it down to 10 or 8 or 6 and i think there's a little bit in family's story about that there's a brief like a paragraph or two about how you know there could still be some negotiation because obviously this is all just this is still very early stages and and um there's going to be discussions within the next month or so. I think the I think the exact quote in the article is something along the lines of, "It's you know the 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 twelve teamer is the path is the path of least resistance. It's the it would be the one that checks off the most boxes. It has the most overlap and in interests where we currently are. Because like honestly, I don't I and, and that's not to say they haven't talked about it. Just at, at this point in time, the twenty four teamer that we're going to talk about later that's that's a pipe dream. That's not going to happen anytime soon." Um, but geez, 12 is half of 24. That's a lot closer yeah. than we have been. So I'll just, I'll read right from the stories just so we're not uh, confused or we're not leaving anything out. So this is right from Pete Thamel's story on Yahoo Sports. It says, the issues are complex, but essentially there are enough stakeholders who'd prefer to stay at four because of the advantages it gives them over growing to eight. Therefore, the likelihood of a 12-team version there will even be some chatter about a 10-team tournament as a compromise has bubbled up. Further, this is Pete Thamel's story. A 12-team version would answer a lot of the immediate looming issues with the college football playoff. Lack of diversity of programs, access for group of five, and the erosion of the importance of supposed top-tier bowl games outside the CFP thanks to player opt-outs. So that's right from Pete Thamel's story. So uh, that's the part I, I was referencing a moment ago. I, I did recall a part where there was some sort of 10-team thing. But again, that's a small part of the story. And it, the, what I take from that is that, again, this is very early. There's still going to be negotiation and talk. Uh, negotiation is not, not the right word. Uh, discussion. And there's a lot of people to go through. So, uh, And Thamel's story says this is not official. 12 is not official. But that's according to his sources 12 seems to be the favorite over a lot of people that have some sway and are involved in the college football playoff uh so so more on okay so i want to talk more a little bit about the whole 12 team versus 18 thing because i know the whole 18 playoff has been really popular 
in college football circles. And am, am I wrong about that? Do you get the sense that for whatever reason, like a lot of people in media and fans like think that eight is like the perfect number? Or yeah, am I that's making that up. I mean, if, yeah, when we talked about or when the media has been talking about expansion, eight is definitely the number that's come up the most. Yeah. OK, so I just wanted to make sure that I'm not imagining that. And you know, again, I I parrot what you said about the 24 team thing. My my whole thing is that with the college football playoff, more teams, the better. And when people are are telling me that eight teams is perfect, you know, my first thought is why? I mean, is it simply because you're doubling from four to eight and that just sounds better? Or is it simply because now you're not leaving out any of the power five champions and, uh, you know, five teams, that'd be that's that wouldn't work. That, that's a weird number. Uh, six kind of sounds weird, too. So let's just go to eight. Is, is that why? And I, you know, I, I'm probably creating a straw man argument. So I'll acknowledge that because you and I are on the same page here and we don't have anybody on the podcast that is for the eight team thing. But I, I do believe another reason I've heard from those who think eight is a, a good playoff number or it's the perfect number comes from the theory that, you know, after the top eight teams or so, there just isn't any other schools anywhere good enough to be considered national championship caliber. And so I understand that theory, but my rebuttal to that would be, you know, I'd prefer that these teams settle things on the football field as opposed to just your opinion or the opinion of journalists and fans that these teams aren't good enough. That keeps them off of a chance to actually compete for a playoff or a championship on the field. That's just not good enough for me just because you think that after eight teams, they're just, they're not good enough anyway. So who cares? Is that, I mean, you've heard that. I mean, I know Colin Coward kind of made a version of that argument years ago and I've, I've heard others make that argument too. Um, I mean, yeah, I would say actually, I don't want to speak out of turn and say that's, that's the argument I see the most. Um, but it's, it's definitely an argument that exists, so you have to take it seriously. Um, I find it completely unpersuasive. Um, I just I feel like that, that headspace, that thought right now is you're living way too much in the moment. It's, it's kind of a failure of, of imagination. And also at the same time, I, I just it's why wouldn't you want to see more college football? Um, I just I, I really don't understand it. And so I think a lot of that logic is definitely coming from uh, a lot of people in the media. They're seeing they're seeing right now they're seeing the the 14 playoff right now. It's more than half of the games that have been played since 2014. in The playoffs have, have been pretty massive blowouts. Um, and I see, I think they're just kind of using the logic of why do we think that's going to be any different if we expand the playoff? And you know, what, you know, it's there probably would still be a lot of blowouts and stuff like that. But, I, you know, I don't. Who cares? That's not, we don't, it's, and, and this gets back to the whole, to the whole idea of why do we, why do we love college football? And, and I, I know for you, you're more of the X's and O's. You like watching the game. Um, but that's, that's not what makes college football special. What makes college football special is it existing, is the ritual and the traditions and the pageantry. That's why we like it. We like it for the feeling of community and belonging. Uh, football's great. I love football. I love I love breaking it down. I love X's and O's. I love I love learning as much as I can about it. Um, but there's tons of football leagues in the world where you can do that. Um, and so why is college football unique? I think a lot of people need to ask themselves that, and they also need to ask themselves if it's so unique, and you know 
why wouldn't you want to see more of it? And so I, I, I think, I think too many people right now are thinking to themselves, well, geez, it's just, it's just been Alabama blowing out some Big Twelve team or some Pac twelve team, or it's been Clemson doing the same, and then those two have just been ending up, at, you know, at the end together. And I mean, my argument would be is that the college football season is bigger than those three games that is played in the playoff. Um, and you know what? I, I know we have this obsession about crowning a champion and sort of every single league is, or a lot of people are in that, are in that headspace. Um, but yeah, my, my argument is that college football is a quasi religious experience. Um, and I think that we should put that, we should try to put that on a stage as much as humanly possible. Uh, I think the best way to do that right now, or one of the more unique and fun ways to do that right now, is to artificially create bonkers atmospheres in November and December, uh, so these traditions, this pageantry, these rituals can be put on full display for the rest of the country to see. Um, I feel like you lose a lot of that in neutral site games. That's not that that aren't the Rose Bowl. Um, and I, I just I'm I'm in favor of any anything. That is going to give us more meaningful college football. I don't care if they're blowouts. That is completely beside the point. I just love college football. I want to see it in its natural state as much as humanly possible. Yeah, I agree with pretty much all of that. And who's to say that if a if a expansion happens and let's say it's 12 teams, I think there's a theory out there that at that point, the talent pool could be spread out more to more and more teams. Because right now, obviously, Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State and, and OU are making it a lot. And the Georgias are getting all these five-star guys. And like we get the SEC recruits very well. And you get it. But what if a lot of this, the reason why these teams are getting all these players, in, in addition, I mean, they're going to get these players regardless. But what if an, an extra reason is because all these players, they want to go play in the playoff, and the best chance they can do that is playing at Alabama, at Clemson, at Oklahoma, at Georgia, at Ohio State. Maybe a, a player would be more willing to go somewhere else if they knew that this team, if they won the conference, could get into the playoff, or a group of five team. Uh, it, again, it's a theory. I don't, I don't know how it would play out. And you throw in, you want to get really into the weeds, the whole NLI, name, image, or NIL, or have name, image, lightness stuff, too. That could also affect recruiting as well if, if certain – players want to go to different schools and maybe they'd be more of a a big a big fish in a little pond and that maybe that could help as well but i, I i'm not prepared to talk about that because i don't know enough about it um but you said something that that i think is is one of the most important parts of this whole thing and my biggest pushback to those who don't want to expand the playoff i mean there's some like i i know like uh, barrett salee is a national college football writer that covers the sec and other things i've heard him say that he he doesn't want to expand at all he wants to keep it at four he thinks four is the best and he's this guy's a big college football guy and i'm sure he's not the only person out there but he's just the first one that comes to mind my thought and my my th saying to people like that is I, I i get i can't help but think that you don't like college football as much as you say you do when you say that you don't want to expand the playoff because you're actively stumping against more big college football games. And my question is, what is the matter with you? What is the matter with you? And you may not think you're doing that, but I have to deduce that's what you're doing because just do the math. The BCS was an improvement over the original system at least we got a true national title game between number one and number two. People like that, that it made sense to me. 
And then the 14 playoff comes, however, you know, after however many years of the BCS, like 15, 16 years of the BCS. And it's been pretty popular compared to the BCS system. I don't want to go back to the BCS system now that we have an actual plus one. I mean, it's a, it's a plus one, but at least it's four teams have a chance. It's getting better and better. So do the math there. I mean, if four team playoff is really popular, if you keep adding teams, it's going to get better and better i i promise it will this is football this is not basketball this is not baseball people love football it's rare there's not a lot of games more playoff teams is not going to water down the regular season and turn people off like it does in college basketball and like it does for the entirety of the major league baseball season where it's 162 games and uh only diehards who care about their one team will watch their own team everybody else is not really watching it's it's going to allow more teams and more fan bases with an expanded playoff, a chance to care a lot more about college football later in the season. And that's a good thing. Uh, teams that are six and three are going to be thinking, oh, like if we went out here and get to nine and three or something like that, make the conference championship game, we could still make the playoff as opposed to, well, I guess we might play in the, uh, I don't know, the Meineke Car Care Bowl if we, uh, you know, finish seven and five. You know, it's just, it, it's going to add a lot more interesting games and make it more fun moving forward. So I just I thought that was a good th- point you brought up and I wanted to add to it. Yeah, I just, you know, kind of riff on what you what you said there. I you know, I think we should be careful to not assign uh, you aren't assigning bad motives to him. You're you're just questioning his love for college football. I just think he probably looks at it in a totally different lens. And I think a lot of people I'm sure he does. And I I've just never heard sorry to interrupt you, but I I've just never whenever I've heard him speak and stuff, and I guess I could probably see if he's written about it, but I just haven't heard anybody ask him a question, and, and it's, it's his, his reasoning has never been persuasive whenever I've heard like a Barrett Salee make that case. It's, just, it's never persuasive, and the, the guy who's questioning him or whatever never asks questions that I would probably ask him about that. So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I, I would, to that, I, I would say... I feel like people who do have that that worldview, that position right now as it relates to college football, a lot of them are kind of coming from the same place. A lot of them are fearful that these will devalue the regular season. Um, now, I think I, I think that's I th- I think that's really wrong because I think it I, I I think that that idea comes with the assumption that kind of the the dogfight regular season, the uh, if you lose the game, your season might be over. They're coming from the assumption of that's what makes college football great. And I just, I, I, I disagree with that. It's, that isn't. That's not what makes it great. Um, it's part of it. It's part of it. There's definitely been seasons where uh, uh, 2007 is a, great, is a great example, where it's like, you know, that season probably is not as crazy in the context of the playoff era uh, as that season was. Um, I just, yeah, I, I just think he's making a mistake there, thinking that that's the reason why people watch college football. I do not believe that is true at all. And we can get into that later, or we can get into it now, I don't know. But um, I just think there's a fallacy there. And I just, I, I, I think these people are, and like, I, I think, you know, this is, a, this is a place Joel Klatt used to be as well. Barrett Salee, I mean, I, I like Barrett Salee. These are people who love college football. And I think they're fearful that, their version of college football in their mind that they love is going to change and not be what they love anymore. Um, and I, and I, I, you know, the argument I would say to them is that you're, it's, there's parts of college football that maybe that are unconscious within you that maybe you don't consciously think about. 
it's it's you love college football for the feeling that it gives you. It has nothing to do with the artificial schedule that's created every single year. Um, and so, yeah, th- those are things that I really want to dive into because I think um, the uniqueness of college football, I think it's much more spiritual. It's much more emotional. It's much more about community and belonging than any other American sport. Um, and I, I, that's why we love it. That's why it, it elicits so much passion in people. It's, it, it's not because... It's not because losing to TCU in week one of the season in 2005 can end your season. That's not why people love it. Yeah, and you mentioned Joel Klatt, and I was going to bring him up as well because he's an example of somebody. I remember he used to talk about how he, he did think that an expanded playoff would devalue the regular season, and that's a big part of college football that he liked a lot. And for whatever reason, over the last year, you know, year and a half, he has evolved, and he is – for an expanded playoff so it is possible for these these people that have been kind of against it to change their mind and and I know that he has given a lot more nuanced reasons why he's changed his mind I don't think it's just strictly because he thinks okay I was wrong about this this would be better I I, I kind of recall him thinking like well he's just more like it's it's something along the lines of like this is kind of inevitable so he's kind of just coming around to the reality of the situation and and if we're going to do this here's how we make it the best or make it better i i and again i'm i'm probably misrepresenting him a little bit but i don't recall him ever just saying like you know what i was wrong and uh, playoff expansion is the best thing ever and i'm like I, there's a lot more nuance to it but the fact that he has kind of changed his mind on it and he's up and he's for it and he's actually i think he's for more than 8 like he's not for the 8 he thinks more would be better and again, I'm I'm trying to remember, you know, one of his his uh, segments on the Cowherd Show, you know, probably from last fall talking about it or something like that. But uh, it's just it's good to see people like Joel Klatt, who's one of the biggest names in college football media, that he changed his mind on it and he came around onto it. Uh, I did have a whole thing about how how college football was before the BCS, but I don't know if it's really going to fit now into our discussion. So uh, I'll yeah I yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you want to jump into that, I think um, I don't think it. I don't think at the time it was a, as egregious of a system as you think it is. I think it was a system that absolutely acknowledged the regional differences, um, and I think a lot of a lot of where that system came from was the thought of, "Geez, man, like these these teams and regions are really different. I have we have no idea who is better than than who." Um, and I, you know, in the early days of college football, that was absolutely correct. I mean, football in Oklahoma was a lot different than football in Florida. That's just how it was. And so, whereas now it's become a much more national sport um, than it was. Where in the early days of college football, it was a regional sport, and it and it is in large parts now, but it's obviously become more national. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I, I can see, I, I can understand why there's people who are nostalgic for that, for that era because that era winning the national championship wasn't the most important thing and I think there's a lot of people who kind of feel like that absolutely has overtaken everything and the reality of the situation is winning a national championship is just not realistic at all for about a hundred of the programs at the highest level and so um, I think there's a lot of people who 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 preferred a system where the entire the entire idea was just to get to the best bowl game you possibly could. Um, but I think that discounts reality right now. I think one of the reasons why, and it feels like college football expansion, the, the playoff talk has, has really ramped up in the last year or two, really ramped up from where, you know, from the first handful of years of the playoff. 
And I think a lot of that has to do with people coming around, maybe not even coming around, but people finally accepting that the bull system is dying. And no matter how much you want to fight and preserve that, I think right now you're probably denying reality. Um, and the reality on the ground is, unless it's the Rose Bowl or one of these, uh, or one of the the power or one of the you know the New Year Six bowls, and even then it's not even a guarantee. These kids don't really care about those bowls right now. Um, and how can you how can you preserve the you know, the tradition, the rituals, and the pageantry of the more historical bowl games and keep those there, the Rose Bowl obviously being number one in mind, while also acknowledging the times and where we are currently in our culture and sports culture, because uh, that's not going to go back. It just isn't. So um, what can we do now to preserve the things that are great about college football, the uniqueness of college football, while also expanding it and, and, and expanding it and bringing it into to modern times, essentially. Um, and I, you know, we've, we've said it for the last four years on this podcast, and I've, I pushed back on you on the 24 teamer when you first uh, when you first talked about it. Uh, but yeah, I mean I, I just and even even I would I'd support things past 24 teams if it made sense. Um, I just want I, I so I, I want to get into this real quick. Uh, let me just one quick just sort of soliloquy because you know I think it's important. And so I've seen the argument go around a lot too that this is going to devalue the regular season. It happens all the time. It's everywhere. It's in the media. This is a very very widely held opinion in our fan base. A widely held opinion amongst a lot of college football fans. So I think you have to take it seriously. I think it's wrong. I I think their fears are unfounded, but I also want to sit here and say, I understand it. I get it because I am somebody who is fiercely loyal and protective of college football. Um, And anything that I feel like is going to harm the sport, I am absolutely going to go to bat for and and I'm going to fight against it. And I think a lot of the people who have this opinion feel the same way about that. Um, Here's why I think you're wrong. Um, and, And of course, every unique individual is different. Everybody has different motivations and reasons for why they like things. But I think this is kind of the general rule, and I think this probably applies to most people, most college football fans, even if you don't, even if you aren't conscious of it, and even if you're, you know, even if you don't realize it. We love college football not because the regular season is a, uh, is, is difficult and has lots and lots of importance from game to game. That's one of the reasons why we like it. It's not the reason why we like it. All right. And I've said it over and over again in this show again. It's about the tradition. It's about the rituals. And it's about the pageantry. In college football, the band plays before the game. And there's usually some form of uh, school song or other school tradition or ritual. At OU, it's the schooner. It's the roughneck shooting off the, shooting off the shotguns. It's, uh, it's, it's the playing of Oklahoma the, the, uh, during, the, during the Pride of Oklahoma's opening performance. All, what that does, it creates a connection with your school that you share with everyone in attendance. And this, this also extends when you're watching the game on TV too. You feel a kinship with people. That feeling of belonging is a human spiritual need. And I think college football provides this need in a very unique way in our culture. And I think we do need to preserve that. 
And so in this context, you can absolutely see why college football feels religious to some people. You know, putting the number one finger in the air and singing the OU chant when I was at the Rose Bowl was a spiritual and quasi-religious experience for me. The Rose Bowl is the holiest site in college football, is it not? Um, and so what I'm saying is this is actually the reason why people like college football. Maybe there's people who haven't reflected enough and realized this, but with a 12-team playoff, especially a 12-team playoff that even plays games on a home campus, a 12-team playoff is not going to take one iota away from anything that I just said there at all. Um, and the best example I, I like to use, um, so maybe it'll kind of hit home for, you know, for people better, better example. It's an example I've used on this podcast. Uh, Kyler Murray and I are radically different people. Our life experiences are different. Uh, the people we have in our orbit are different. Everything that's happened in our lives is radically, radically different that we probably can't see eye to eye on. Except for one thing. If I was in a room with Kyler Murray by myself, it was just him and I, there are lots of things that we would not be able to talk about whatsoever because there would be no mutual understanding. But there is one thing I definitely know that we could talk about and there's mutual understanding. That's important. And I think, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure, especially in our culture now, a lot of people internalize and reflect on how important that is. And I think college football uniquely provides that to the people who are the craziest about it. And that's why I love it. And I think that's why most people love it too, unconsciously or consciously. Yeah, I mean, you can make that argument. It's the same with like all the crazy NFL fan bases too. You can make the argument with all the, the big, I mean, outside of the United States in the Premier League with, I mean, that's the same idea. It's, it's all just a sense of belonging and kinship and part of something bigger than yourself. I mean, that's a, that's a natural human, human. That's where, uh, yeah. I would say that's where the amateurism comes in. And this is, and maybe this is why I'm, I'm so kind of iffy about paying college players and the NIL stuff. That's my bit that I think may ruin college football. Just like, People who think, you know, expanding the playoff might ruin college football um, because I am super in to the emotional side of it, the tradition side of it. And part of the cool thing about college football is that, and of course, I'm probably being naive here. Of course, people are being paid to go to certain places right now under the table and everything like that. But the idea that some, that a, that a kid picks a school and goes there is there's, there's something about that that forms sort of a connection. You think to yourself, oh, wow, this guy could have gone wherever he want, wherever he wanted to, but he picked the same school that I did. For what reasons? Maybe he saw the same things that I did. Um, and I think uh, professional sports especially does not provide that same level of connection. And that's not to say that there aren't people who are, who are fiercely loyal to their NFL teams, internalize it, and are a big part of their lives, especially with the different cities and states that they represent. All I'm saying is that college sports and college football in particular, in that regard, is just different. Yeah, and it'd be interesting because uh, just to, to get like, I don't know if there's a way to, to measure this, but... Uh, you know, your reasoning for college football and why you like it. I mean, that's it's, it's certainly not the reason why I like college football. I mean, you and I differ on that. I, I realize that's a big part of it. Uh, but 
my, the way I'm wired is uh, traditions and history. Like, uh, it, it doesn't do as much for me as a lot of things. Uh, like, for example, I mean, the, the whole idea of um, we, were, we were talking earlier, and I, I didn't comment on it, but the whole idea of the, the top four teams in this 12 team scenario getting a bye, but then not being able to play a home game is is obviously a huge problem because I'm with you 100 percent that playing these playoff games on campus is a big reason why a playoff would be would be so cool. That's a reward, yeah. too. That should be a it, reward. Yes, exactly. And so, and the reason why I bring that up is because uh, I think the big issue here and, and why it's going to be difficult to try to figure this out is because of all the bowl games and stuff, I believe, right? Because the idea of trying to keep all these bowl games, the tradition alive, also along with an expanded playoff. And I don't have an answer for how this is going to work. And... Personally, I could not care less about the bowl games. I, I, they don't mean anything to me. I, so if it was up to me, I would say, well, the bowl games, I don't care. They're, they're going to be playoff games now. Who cares? And they're going to be on campus a lot. Like, I'd be more open for just a bunch of home playoff sites. And then, like in the NFL, the national title game is then on a neutral site. Because, like, I don't care about the bowl games. I don't. I, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. I know you care about the bowl games a lot more than I do, and maybe a lot more college football fans are like you than are like me. And so I think that's why it's kind of interesting. Care about them way less, way less than I did five years ago. So see, and that's what's interesting because it's about not, it. Yeah, because I, I think there's there's clear momentum. There's just like the the average college football player now in the nation just doesn't care as much about bowl games as they used to. I don't think you're ever putting that genie back in the bottle. I mean, that's just how it is. There's, the bowl games are typically played in front of like a quarter full crowd, not a lot of people there. And it's it's all a TV product. If it's just a TV product, then just admit it and and make the product for TV, and and try to make it and try to make the best TV product you possibly can, which I can assure you is playoff games on campus. And kind of later on too, when we get more into the 24 team, and I know we've already jumped into it. I've done this. I've done this exercise in the past and I just want to, so I did this a couple years ago. So I went through like my notes and my notebook and I, um, a couple years ago, I gamed out what a 24 teamer would look like after the 2019 season. So that was, you know, Joe Burrow, Heisman, Hertz at OU. Um, and it's reading through the potential like first round matchups gives you kind of chills thinking about, um, just what's on the table there. And uh, I mean, is, do you think it's a good time to go into that now? Or do you think? Uh, sure. I, I also gamed out what a 12 team playoff last year would have looked like. So uh, that can be I, after you do do the 24 teamer, I can say what, uh, you know, a, a, even a, a 12 teamer would look like. And, and I went through these matchups and stuff and the setup. And I was thinking, OK, that's that's pretty sweet. Even even being half of the 2014 model. So yeah, go ahead. And sure, sure. So in this uh, in this scenario, the 2014 model is exactly like uh, the FCS model. So uh, there are, well, I guess in this one, you know, there's automatic berths for every conference champion, and that includes group of five. Um, and then the rest are at-larges. So there's more at-larges than there are automatics. Um, and the at-larges, I, I picked kind of like a, 
uh, a combo between what the what the CFP rankings were and also just rankings and other things that I took into account. Um, and so here are here's just a smattering of what the first round matchups would be. These would be on campus, and the top eight seeds uh, get a buy. And also in this one, you don't you're not guaranteed a buy by winning your conference championship. Uh, you're just guaranteed in the tournament by winning your conference championship. And then once everyone's in, they reseed everybody. That's so that's that's based on this. So here's here's some of the first round matchups that could have happened in 2019 under a 2014 playoff. Memphis at Notre Dame, uh, Central Michigan at Florida. That's the worst of all of the matchups in the first round. This is when it starts to get good. USC at Alabama. Appalachian State at Minnesota in December in Minneapolis. Iowa at Oregon. Oklahoma State at Auburn. Uh, Florida Atlantic at Penn State is not a particularly great one. Um, And then one that's really interesting, Boise State at Michigan would be another one. And then that sets up, listen to some of these second round possibilities on campus. Notre Dame at number one LSU. Florida at number eight, Wisconsin in Madison in December. Alabama at OU in Norman in December. Minnesota at Georgia. Iowa or Oregon at Clemson. Oklahoma State or Auburn at Utah in December. Penn State at Baylor. Boise State or Michigan at Ohio State. So maybe Michigan-Ohio State again. A playoff game in Columbus. You're telling me you don't want to see that? (laughs) No, but hey, they already played, Grant. So, I mean, it's so unfair to the team that won that. No, get get out of here. That would... This, like, I feel like people need to to get on board with the 24-teamer just so, just for the visual, so we can see an SEC team go play a Big Ten team in their stadium in December. You don't want to see that? Yeah, and that's the thing is the gamed out, 2014 model would would love to to uh, push that not push that uh, present that to anybody who is not for an expanded playoff or thinks like eight is the best or and just to, to see what their reply would be because how like you said how do you go against that do you say nah is, I mean do they they fall back on the tired stuff like well the season's too long player safety blah 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 which then my rebuttal to that is, well, again, they do this in the FCS level. So it happens. A big change in the 2014 playoff model would be conference championship games would have to go away. Bye-bye, gone. Yes. Which yes. is great. That's, so, that's yeah, great. Everything that's I, fine. Yeah. Conference championship games now are, for the most part, kind of useless. I, th- that's actually that's the biggest roadblock, though. I know, because um, the and conferences I think, I love think that's, that's the SEC, mostly. The SEC loves it, yeah. Uh, because, yeah, they're huge, they're huge cash cows. Oh, yeah. They're huge cash cows. I was actually I was looking through Twitter, and this uh, this popped up right before we started recording. Um, but uh, Dennis Dodd at CBS Sports he tweeted out that one of his sources is saying that it's not a slam dunk that a twelve teamer would have automatic bids, um, and that's that's unacceptable. That that's um, I, I I would assume that's an SEC source. That's that's definitely an SEC thing. Um, I can't. I can't begin to explain to you how destructive the no automatic bids right now is is to college football. 
It's you need automatic bids. You have to attach some relevancy to winning your conference. You have to. Otherwise, you are artificially getting rid of, at least for right now, at least one or two different conference champions. You are getting rid a lot of getting rid of a lot of the meaning around that conference championship. That has got to change. The reason that it's not that it's this this is an SEC thing. They're gonna have to they're gonna have to evolve and change on that. Um, I guess I, I'm I'm not sure what the answer is for that. I don't know. It's we'll have to see if that's the if, if Dodd's sources are the same source that told him last like June and July that three to seven college football players were gonna die from COVID this past football season. I thought I I thought about that. Just the most too. egregious story, and I can't remember if we talked about it at the time on the podcast. We probably didn't. We probably shied away from it because we don't. We were trying not to talk about it, but anyways, that was one of the most ridiculous stories that's ever been made. I, I I'm still looking for his uh, his uh, column apologizing for that ridiculous story where he he found the one expert, and I'm using air quotes expert that could tell him that people were going to die. When at that time, this isn't going back in hindsight. At the time, there was plenty of other experts, and you can use the air quotes or not. That could have told him that no, it's going to be fine. It's going to be no problem at all because statistically, college kids are are not going to be affected by this. But yet he found the one person that told him the super scary version of the story to try to basically actively get college football canceled for 2020. That is unacceptable, and I am pissed. <sighs> Anyways, um, all right. So, uh, wow, you kind of took the uh, you took over sort of the Grant role there. Well, I just don't, I mean, Dennis, that, I, I didn't have many thoughts on Dennis Dodd before that story that came out about a year ago, and I mean, that, I still don't have many thoughts aside from, I don't really care what that guy says, because uh, it, it doesn't matter, like, it doesn't matter to me. So the 2014 playoff from 2019, you, you brought that up, a lot of great matchups. I went ahead and threw together what the playoff would have looked like in 2020 in this 12-team model that's in Pete Thamel's report from Yahoo. So going off of, uh, you know, in, in this whole scenario, obviously the conference championship games still, they determine the automatic bids. And so the automatic bids for the 12-team playoff in 2020 would have been Oregon out of the Pac-12, Alabama out of the SEC, Clemson out of the ACC, Ohio State out of the Big Ten, OU out of the Big 12, and then the highest ranked group of five school also gets an automatic bid according to that article and that would have gone to cincinnati who i believe was ranked ninth or eighth so cincinnati gets the sixth automatic bid and then you fill in the rest of it according to that story with six at large bids and i just simply did this based off of the final college football playoff rankings i you know, I didn't make it more difficult than it, than it could have been. And I just looked at, all right, what teams didn't get automatically into the tournament? All right, I'll just start with the highest ranked team and then just go down and find the first six teams. And so what that got me was Notre Dame as an at-large bid, Texas A&M as an at-large bid, Florida as an at-large bid, Georgia as an at-large bid, Iowa State, and then finally Indiana as the 12th final team in the playoffs. So those are your 12 teams. Here is the seeding, and this is based off of the college football playoff rankings. I'm assuming this is how they would do it normally. If not, I guess they would have to make up a different system. Should be the BCS. Yeah, they could go back to the BCS where it's not people making the decision. It's more computers and stuff. I, yeah, there's definitely an argument for that. But based off of the college football playoff rankings, 
This is what the seeding would have been for that 12-team playoff. One Alabama, two Clemson, three Ohio State, four Notre Dame. And according to that article, all four of those teams get a bye, which, again, that's ridiculous because then they don't get to play home games. That will hopefully get worked out in the future if 12 is the right number. After that, number five, Texas A&M, six OU, seven Florida, eight Cincinnati, nine Georgia, 10 Iowa State, 11 Indiana, 12 Oregon. And so that gets us all to the matchups, all right? So the first round matchups, and these would be on home sites, Last season in a 12-team playoff, Texas A&M hosting Oregon in the first round, Oklahoma hosting Indiana. I like that matchup for the Sooners. Florida hosting Iowa State. Be pretty interesting. The Iowa State's defense against that crazy Florida offense. Uh, I think Florida's offense would have probably had their had their way, but we know Florida's defense wasn't all that great. So Iowa State's offense, eh. In the swamp, that'd been a pretty fun game to watch. Who knows? And then a game that actually happened in a bowl game, Cincinnati and Georgia. But the difference, obviously, here would be that Cincinnati gets to host. So Cincinnati would have, would have hosted Georgia in that weather, Georgia going up north. That was a close game. Cincinnati basically snatched defeat from the jaws of victory in that one, if I remember correctly. So that's your first-round matchups. And then after that, you get... Alabama against either Cincinnati or Georgia. Clemson against either Florida or Iowa State. Ohio State against either OU or Indiana. Notre Dame against Texas A&M or Oregon. So even with 12 teams a season ago, who doesn't want to watch any of those games? I mean, every single one of those games, I am, yeah, I am watching every single second if I can, if I'm available. And I'm assuming you're the same exact way. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's not every game you would have to watch. I mean, it's the, especially the on-campus games. I mean, those are the ones that I would be the most pumped for. Uh, so, anyways, um, good stuff. Glad that playoff expansion, like you mentioned a, like a, a while ago. It, yeah, the talks have ramped up, it seems like, the last year or two. And that's a good thing for people like us who want it. Uh, not a great thing for those who still don't want it, but uh, again, like you know, maybe at some point we can get somebody on the podcast that disagrees with us, and that could be a pretty good episode. I don't know. I mean, I again, like it, it'd be good for us to get the perspective from somebody who doesn't want a bigger playoff, and then you know we could see if our persuasive tactics or things that we think could persuade people if it works or doesn't work, and maybe they could persuade us. Who knows? I would, I would definitely like to hear the best argument for not expanding the playoff that doesn't have to do with devaluing the regular season. I, I would like to hear that argument. Same here. All right. Let's switch over to the old 11 a.m. kickoff topic. And since we last talked, uh, we found out the kickoff times for two of Oklahoma's first three games of the 2021 season. The season opener at Tulane on September the 4th kicks off at 11 a.m. and is going to be on ABC. And then two weeks later, when Oklahoma hosts Nebraska, and I'm sorry, I can't tell you the last time they played. Was it 2000? 2000, 2000, no, 2000, the Big 12 title game? Was it 2000? Big 12 title game in 2010. 2010? Yeah, okay. So the last time uh, they played was 2010 Big 12 title game. So Oklahoma hosts Nebraska. And everyone knows that game kicks off at 11 a.m. as well, and that's going to be on Fox. So... Oklahoma getting 11 a.m. kickoffs has become just a big old thing, a big talking point, you know, the last couple of years since Fox decided to make 
their big flagship game of the week kick off at 11 a.m. And it is true that Oklahoma has gotten a bunch of 11 a.m. kickoffs in recent memory. It's not just one of those things where we make a big deal of, but it's not necessarily true. No, it is true that Oklahoma's kicked off at 11 a.m. a bunch. And I went back to the beginning of the college football playoff era. So that's the 2014 season. And I tracked kickoff times for the four schools who've made the playoff the most during the era. And that's, of course, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma. And after crunching the numbers, Oklahoma definitely has a gripe, but Ohio State has a a bigger gripe on the 11 a.m. kickoffs because Ohio State actually has had the most kickoffs in the 11 a.m. window because some of these games kicked off at 11.30 or noon or basically 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. that window, but most of the games are 11 a.m. Ohio State, since 2014, has kicked off 34 times at 11 a.m. during that window. OU... 32 times so right up there almost the same but just slightly less and then Clemson 23 times Alabama only 12 games in the last 14 15 16 17 18 19 in the last seven years Alabama's only kicked off at 11 a.m 12 times all right how about the 2:30 window 2:30 late afternoon that time time zone That's where Alabama has been playing most of its games, as you all might expect, because all the uh, big SEC on CBS games. Alabama in the playoff era has kicked off at 2.30 or later 47 times. Clemson, 29 times. Oklahoma, 23. Ohio State, 21. And then finally, you got the primetime kick, 6 o'clock or later. Clemson's been on primetime a lot more than everybody else. Well, They're kind of close to Alabama, but Clemson with the most at 47, Alabama at 40, OU 37, 6 o'clock or later kicks, and then Ohio State 34, 6 o'clock or later kicks. And this is all, again, since 2014, since the playoff began. So those are all the numbers. Uh, Ohio State has more of a gripe than Oklahoma if you're not a big fan of 11 a.m. kicks and you want primetime games. Ohio State's kind of had the short short end of the stick but it's still pretty similar to Oklahoma those are the two teams that have uh, again if you're not a big fan of 11 a.m. kicks you'd rather have kicks at 2 30 or 6 o'clock or later Uh, OU and Ohio State are getting the short end of the stick there Grant thoughts a lot of thoughts a lot of ways that you know a lot of directions you can take this Um, I will start just with my personal opinion I like 11 a.m. kickoffs as, a, as someone who watches a vast majority of games on TV, uh, I prefer the game to kick off at 11. One of my dreams is to move to the West Coast so that there will be 9 a.m. kickoff college football games. I'm just a morning person. I like the morning. I like how peaceful it is. Uh, in my eyes, the more college football in the early morning, the better for me. Of course, I am an adult, and I realize that not everybody's a morning person, and life is not that clean. Um. I also, I mean, honestly, if I'm going to the game, I also prefer an 11 a.m. kick. Um, there's, and maybe that's more because I've I've gone to a lot of uh, Gopher 11 a.m. kickoff games, and there is something about getting there at six o'clock in the morning to start drinking and tailgating, like when the the air is crisp in the fall, is is really special, is really cool, um, and so I, I kind of like that. Uh, having that been said, though, like the people who are bummed about this, I totally get it. I totally, totally get it. Um, where I kind of where I get more animated on this is just is kind of the thought of 
Next year at Nebraska will almost certainly be at night. Um, it's when it, it's when it gets to the point where OU plays all of their big games at 11 a.m. when they're at home. But if they ever play a ranked team on the road, it's always at night. That's where it gets ridiculous. That's where it starts to get ridiculous. You should uh, you should go and research that to see how accurate that is because I didn't do that and I, I I don't get that sense and uh and I don't think it's it's uh, we don't know yet about is it next year they're going to play Nebraska is it just back to back years twenty one and twenty two yeah I mean yep. again it's this is a Fox thing it's a TV thing so that game could easily be at eleven a.m. as well I mean because that's Fox's big time slot and if Fox gets that game they're going to probably put it at eleven a.m. again. So it's not a slam dunk that they're they're going to play at night uh, next year in Lincoln. You're right, and maybe that's that's just maybe kind of my my cynical right. PTSD side coming out. But it would be interesting um, to see if to do the research to see if if that's true that Oklahoma plays a lot more of their their tough games on the road at night. That'd be interesting. But yeah, and this I mean on the ground in Oklahoma, the frustration is perfectly understandable. Um, OU Nebraska is is important in that part of the country. It's not. It, it, it transcends just a football game, as we were talking about earlier. It's not just about the football game. It's about the mutual respect these fan bases have for each other, and it's about how Oklahoma and Nebraska fans, despite their football differences, are actually really similar people. And there's a lot of, there, a lot of people like to celebrate that. Um, and so I think it definitely makes sense from an emotional standpoint. You think of OU Nebraska with how important it is, especially in the history of college football, that's a night game. It just feels like a night game. Anytime that I've been daydreaming or thinking about this game, it's I've always pictured it at night. Um, night games, I mean, unquestionably have better atmospheres in general. That's, I don't even, and that's not to say 11 a.m. games can't have one, uh, but just as a general rule, night games are just, are just a lot more electric, period. Um, all of the, you know, all of the complaints about local businesses and bars and stuff like that, um, Profiting more from a from a late kickoff, completely reasonable, a completely reasonable uh, concern to have, and also just the fan experience. People, uh, I mean, a lot of people who go to OU games, I, I would assume that most of them aren't. I, I'd assume a lot of people are coming from Dallas. Uh, I, I mean, tens of thousands of people, I would assume, are coming from the Dallas Metroplex to these games, um, and that's I get it. That's tough at 11 a.m. That's that's not the greatest thing ever. Um, so from that standpoint, totally get it. Um, where I start to kind of get a little wishy-washy and be like, yeah, I'm not really sure this really, you know, adds up is when people start to, re- to complain about the recruiting angle of it. Um, I, I, I definitely understand this concept of, you know, yeah, you can't, you can't bring big time recruits in for a big time recruiting weekend when they play on Friday night and they have to be on a super early flight in the morning. All of that is perfectly reasonable to me. That's you know that's fine. I, doesn't really seem to hurt Ohio State. Why should it hurt OU? Um, you know, play with the hand that you're dealt with. Uh, you know, it's 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 not hurting Ohio State at all. That so, um, I and I and I'm, honestly, I don't I don't think that's hurting OU. I, I I think it's I think it's really unlikely that OU is going to flip some person or somebody's going to flip because. Nebraska was at night or and and wasn't during the day. So I just I, I'm not I'm not super persuaded by that argument. I understand that logistically it makes it a lot harder for OU's compliance and recruiting department. In terms of actually landing the guys you want to land, I, I gotta think that there's literally no correlation with that whatsoever. Yeah, you know, I that's that's 
reasonable to me. I, I, I'm kind of with you. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know what gets recruits winning and putting people in the NFL? And, I mean, uh, an 11 a.m. kickoff and a, and a cool thing, that's, that's not going to be the make or break, right? Putting I, people in the NFL, that gets recruits these days. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what OU needs to focus on. So I think, I think you make good points. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear from a coach. I know I, I, I'm pretty sure the coaching staff, like Lincoln Riley, is not happy. Like, I, I think they are into it, but they're mad about the whole recruiting aspect of it, which that's their livelihood. I get it. Uh, but how much of it is that they're not getting certain guys and how much of it is it just this makes it more annoying for them on game days to get everything scheduled? It, it, could, be, it could just be like this is really annoying because like – Normally, we'd have a lot more time, and now we have to push it all up. And So I, my point is, how much of the annoyance is it just because it's inconvenient on the day versus they're not landing certain players because of the early kickoff time? And that's something that I just don't know. And, uh, yeah, that, that's the debate, I, I suppose. And also, yeah, and also just on, on the OU side, you know, because J- Joe Castiglione had that pretty strongly worded statement about that's right, it, saying that's right. he was bitterly disappointed. Um, and hey, from the OU side, from a logistical standpoint, no doubt 11 a.m. kickoffs are probably a lot more difficult. And I can, as- I, I can absolutely imagine that if you're getting these things over and over and over again, it's a pain in the ass. And that's going to piss people off. Um, especially when you feel like, as, as Oklahoma, that you're, you kind of, you're bringing the eyes to their network. At the same time, though, I, I really do think it's, it's smart, it's wise for people to take a deep breath and just look at, check the facts, look at the reality here. You know, that, that 11 a.m. window, that is Fox's big window. That's where they get the biggest ratings. And also, in September's, in primetime, Fox has Major League Baseball. That's not going to change. That 6 p.m. time slot in Fox is not a thing in September. They have Major League Baseball. And so, when, you really, when it really comes down to it, what OU is kind of asking for for a night game, they wanted that 6 o'clock game on Fox Sports 1. And then I think if, if, if that's the reality, you need to start weighing the trade-offs there. Is it more valuable for the university to have more eyes on them in the 11 a.m. time slot, or is it more valuable for the, the fan game day experience to put that game on FS1? And it's nowhere near as many people would watch it. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I get what you're saying there at the end there with Fox and, and the time slot stuff. I, at least for this particular day, I, actually, I went and looked at the day, the September 18th. The baseball stuff that doesn't factor in. Uh, it's it no, it, it's okay. uh, there's, there's two games on Fox that day, and obviously Oklahoma plays at 11 a.m. and the other game is at 2:30, which Oklahoma would more, be more than happy to play at 2:30, I'm sure. But the problem with that is that that's a West Coast game. It's a Pac-12 game. It's USC and Washington State, and they're not going to put them at 11 a.m. So where they're playing at 9 a.m. local time. So there's nothing. It's there's nothing at 6 p.m. Not on Fox. No. On Fox. No, I mean they got. I'm sure they're. I'm sure they have things on FS1. Yeah, they got. Uh, yeah, I mean o- OSU plays on a Saturday night. OSU plays Boise State on, on FS1 at eight o'clock that day, and yeah, that's it. And Ohio State plays Tulsa at two thirty on FS1. <laughs> uh, the the big the big primetime game that day on September eighteenth that I mean people are going to watch it. It's interesting is on ABC, the ABC night, uh, night game, Auburn at Penn State. But, I mean, people would also watch OU Nebraska if it, if it kicked off at 6. It, it, but, uh, 
So yeah, I mean, maybe Fox is planning on having Major League Baseball at night that night, but at least they're not they're not put. It's gotta be, it's gotta be. I, I don't. I'm trying to think of what a, like. And you and I, I mean, we we're super into like TV and like this is what would they have at 6 p.m. on a Saturday night that's not sports? Yeah. So like, yeah, maybe they're it's September. That's what the uh, is that gonna be the the, champi- the I mean, championship series somewhere? No, nah, it's the last two weeks of the regular season. Oh yeah, um, it's not October yet. Yeah, man, that's just man. What a if it's weird. Yeah, if, there, if there's just nothing there right now, if they haven't don't have anything scheduled, I just I, I think it's a fairly safe well, assumption. At least college that that's football be wise, they don't have anything at at night. Um, but uh, yeah, the two thirty time slot would be a lot more advantageous. But I guess in theory, maybe the eyeballs wouldn't be quite as there. But in that day, I think there would be because I don't. There's not any other games really going on that are interesting. I don't think. Am I? Like am I am I hallucinating? Don't Georgia and Clemson play this year? Do they not play in the opening week? Or am I am I just have I totally misremembered that? And uh, they might. Let's see. That day at six o'clock, Georgia plays South Carolina. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, Georgia and Clemson play first weekend at six thirty. Oh the, okay yeah you oh you were just yeah you were just looking at week three okay that that makes a whole lot more sense yeah. now yeah yeah Auburn Auburn and Penn State's week three. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's very clearly the marquee. That's should definitely be the the marquee game of the day. Uh, so, anyways, um, I had one more point. Oh, yeah. So, so you, th- as far as my thoughts on eleven thirty a.m. kicks, I I don't mind them, but it's only because I work in the media. It's because of my job. Like eleven a.m. kickoffs to me, they mean a way less stressful Saturday for what I do for work. Uh, but if I was a, a fan who didn't have to work on Saturdays, then I'd be just as annoyed with 11 a.m. kickoffs as Oklahoma fans are and also some of the OU coaches and Joe Castiglione is. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we talked about the recruiting already. Um, just for the record, the, the big noon kickoff, the Fox big noon kickoff thing, it started in 2019. So they've only had it for two years. So in the last two seasons, and that's the whole thing, like we're, oh, we're going to make our 11 a.m. kickoff the big game of the day. And so in the last two years, the last two seasons, Oklahoma has had 10 games kick off at 11 a.m. Ohio State's had 11 games kick off at 11 a.m. Just the past two seasons. Compare that to Alabama, who the last two years has had five games kick off at 11 a.m. And Clemson, who's had five games kick off at 11 a.m. So the last two seasons, Oklahoma and Ohio State have played double the amount of 11 a.m. games than uh, Clemson and and Ohio State. So that's... And, no. and that's where the, the rub comes in. The ACC and the SEC have much better TV contracts. I think that's it. And the Big Ten has the Big Ten Network, which is, you know, a ton of exposure too. So, and there's also, like, the Big Ten doesn't play night games in November. Um, so there, there's also kind of an artificial capping there too. You just, there's just not a lot of conference night games in the Big Ten. That's, that's one of their weird tradition things. They just don't really do it. All right, we got about uh, 20, 25 minutes left before we got to get out of here. Anything else on your mind before I give you my Buki rewatch results? Uh, nothing, nothing OU football related. Probably definitely going to have to skip over our college softball talk at the end. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe we'll see. All right, yeah. I, so the, when Buki announced he was transferring, he transferred to Washington. I mentioned a couple times on the show. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to make any sort of drastic, uh, hard line takes on whether or not this is a good thing, a bad thing, indifferent, until I go back 
and actually rewatch all of his games because he was a very polarizing player and it was really easy to hate on the guy. And I did it a lot. I criticized him a lot for his penalties and dumb mistakes. The biggest thing being of which in 2019, the, the idiotic targeting call against LSU. Uh, I, I hammered him for that. And um, I once his three years of were completed and he was transferring, I wanted to take a step back and, and think, okay, how many thoughts about Brendan Radley Hiles are just emotion based? How many things are you forgetting about the way he played on the field? Maybe he was better than you think or remember him being. Let's go back and remind myself of all the games. And that's what I did. And it took a long time. Uh, we're here now, middle of June, early mid June. So I guess it lasted, you know, three, four months or so. And I've finally determined whether or not Buki transferring is a good thing, is a bad thing for OU, or if it's just, if it just, it is, it's, it's a wash. And that's where we're, that, that, that's kind of what I want to get out of here. So let me just quickly go over my grading scale. So I, I watched all the games. I graded everything. You get one point for something good, minus one point for something bad, minus one point for a missed tackle. And I took away a half a point for a missed chance. And an uh, example of a missed chance, the most missed chances were always dropped interceptions. I mean, those happened a lot all across the defensive backfield from 18, 19, and 20. And every once in a while, maybe, like, you're in good position to make a play on a ball, and you just you, you whiffed. You missed it. You didn't tip it. And a guy made a catch and made a play. That's a missed chance. But mostly dropped interceptions. Uh, I had a whole thing here, but we don't have time for it. Uh, for like an example of a good play would be, hey, like a, like a PBU, uh, open field tackle. Maybe the DB came up and made a nice tackle near the line of scrimmage uh, or obviously a TFL. You know, maybe you, you made a tackle short of the first down marker on third down. And I was like, OK, that's a nice play. You, you brought up fourth down. You're, they're going to punt. Uh, I also kind of gave out half points for smaller positive plays. Like maybe maybe a DB's job was to set the edge on a run play and he did it. And that allowed his teammates to rally and make the tackle. So he did his job, and I gave him a half a point for that. Uh, another example of a half-point play, maybe the coverage was really good. You know, maybe really good coverage, and that directly helped lead to an incomplete pass. You know, maybe it wasn't a full-blown PBU, but just your presence in the area around you. Maybe you jarred the ball loose. You caused the receiver to drop a pass. I gave you a half point for that. Uh, interceptions, I gave you a point and a half. So one and a half points for an interception. And I gave you an extra point for a pick six. So a pick six was worth 2.5 points. And for a bad play, an example would be committing a penalty. That happened a whole lot. That, that's mainly what you got knocked for a bad play, committing a dumb penalty. Uh, candidly, there were probably about three or four penalties in the three years I watched that I, I didn't count against guys because maybe they were ticky-tack. That was a bad call. Uh, or maybe for some of my, I, I just took away a half a point because it was kind of like, eh, not the greatest play, but still shouldn't have been called a penalty. And, uh, you know, maybe your technique was bad, led to a big completion. I took away a half a point. Missed tackles were separate. I took away a, a point for a missed tackle. You know, sometimes you lost just a half a point for a missed tackle. If it was some, a tackle that was kind of difficult, but you still should have made the play. But I decided to cut you a little slack, so I gave you only, you know, missed only a half a point. And lastly, the missed chance thing. I took away half a point for missed chances. Again, those were mostly dropped interceptions. I know, not a scientific grading scale, but it made sense to me. And before I get to my final results, Grant, do you have any questions or comments or issues with my grading scale? It's just, it's pretty, I don't know. That's a lot. Good on you for doing that. 
All right, so here's the deal, guys. 2018 was not good uh, for Buki. It was bad, and it was bad for everybody. So it was his freshman year. Mike Stoops and then Ruffin McNeil, they're were, they were the DCs. Uh, in the spirit of fairness, again, I just got to qualify that it was bad for everybody. I did not track everybody else in the defensive backfield in 2018. I just tracked Buki. So I don't have everybody else's stats and grades to compare to his. For 2019 and 2020, I did track everybody else. So it's a lot more accurate. So that's another reason why I'm going to be fair. Buki in 2018, his total points was minus 12 and a half. That's really bad. That's really, really bad. Nobody else in the next two years got anywhere close to that, <laughs> which is a good thing. That means everybody got better. <laughs> but who's to say that a bunch of other defensive backs in 2018 were in the negative points. I'm sure all of them probably were, except for maybe Parnell Motley. Although Parnell Motley did get penalized seven times in 2018. So he had a lot of negative plays as well. Uh, and also, speaking of penalties, one of the most surprising things I found about during the rewatch is in 2018, Buki did not get penalized once. Zero penalties for Buki in 2018. So 2018 was bad. Buki was, re was really bad. He had 10 good plays eight and a half bad plays so he, he had more well he also had 10 missed tackles so total he had he had a lot more bad plays than good and he had eight missed chances and that it was just it was by far his worst year but again it was the worst year for a lot of guys so my final analysis I'm not going to factor in 2018 as much as I factor in 2019 and 2020 because I didn't grade everybody the same way I graded Buki and it was bad for everybody so that's my just by qualifier for 2018, it was bad, but it was bad for everybody. Now, 2019 is where it gets interesting. Buki made a huge jump in 2019. He was the second highest graded DB on the team that year, according to my scoring. Parnell Motley had 11. He was plus 11. Buki was plus 9.5. Pat Fields was third at 8.25. Jaden Davis, six points. DTY, 5.75. Trey Brown, just barely above uh, neutral at 1.5. And Justin Broyles, the only guy in negatives, he was negative two in 2019. And so I credited Buki with 24 and a half good plays in 2019. That tied Parnell Motley for the most on the team. Buki went uh, from 10 good plays in 2018 to 24 and a half in 2019. I mean, a, an exceptional jump. Bad plays in 2019, Buki had seven. He also had seven and a half missed tackles, but only one missed chance. He had eight missed chances in 2018, only one missed chance in 2019. And it's worth mentioning that Buki's tackling improved throughout the season. In the first five games, he had six missed tackles, but in the last nine games of the year, he only had one and a half missed tackles. So he got better at tackling as the season went on. But I got to say, okay, so here's where we get into the details of it. When Buki, when, when people think about Buki in 2019, what do you think? And I know that I'll ask you, Grant, what do you think about Buki in 2019? I know you, you, you have a lot more of a, a positive feel, but like when I say 2019 Buki, what, what comes to mind? In a lot of ways, he was the glue of the secondary. Okay. He wasn't the best. Parnell Motley had the best season. He was the best defensive back. Uh, you could, you could make an argument that Buki was, was the glue, was maybe the most valuable member of the secondary. Now, if you ask generic, generic OU fan or some of the people who listen to West of Everest and they say, Buki 2019, what do you think they would say? 
probably nothing particularly kind. I, I would assume most people would probably think 2018 and 2019 are pretty similar. Okay. So I, I would guess, at least for me, I know, I know when I've looked back at 2019 before I did this rewatch, my, my thing is, is penalties, boneheaded plays, uh, him just kind of hurting his team in ways that were unnecessary. And again, I mentioned the LSU game earlier. Uh, I think it's one of the dumbest football plays I've ever seen on a football field. I mean, absolutely dumb. And I know he copped to it later. Fine. Uh, in hindsight, I think that play clouded my overall judgment of Buki's 2019 season. Because I, I went back and looked. He only committed four penalties in 2019. Just four. He didn't have any in 2018, and he committed four in 2019. It was not the most on the team for the defensive backs. Trey Brown committed two times as many penalties as Buki. He had eight in 2019, and Parnell Motley had six. So Motley and Brown were penalized a lot more than Buki, but here's the thing, though. Buki's penalties stood out a lot more than Trey Brown's or Parnell Motley's in a lot of ways, except for Parnell Motley's penalty in the Kansas State game that got him tossed, which was obviously terrible, uh, stupid. So against Texas, second quarter, 22 seconds to go before the half, he's got good leverage on his guy. He's man-to-man coverage, but then he just grabs a guy blatantly, holds his man for no reason, six yards in front of the first down marker on third down. And Sam Ellinger doesn't have anywhere to go with the ball. He runs out of bounds before picking up the first down, but it happens right in front of the official. Boogie gets called for a flag. Texas gets 10 free yards, didn't need to hold the guy. Texas kicks a field goal before the half. The dumb, senseless penalty leads to Texas points. All right? That's one of his four penalties. Against Iowa State, he was flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct late in the third quarter after he randomly hit a wide receiver away from the play. There was no reason to do it at all. The play was happening all the way across the field. It was right in front of the referee who threw the flag. It was a bit ticky-tack, but again, it was right in front of the referee, and there was no reason to decleat the guy 50 yards away from the play. And what made it even worse is that it was a third down play in the red zone. And instead of Iowa State being forced to make a decision to go for it on fourth down or kick a field goal, the penalty gave him a free first down and Iowa State scored a touchdown one play later. So another dumb penalty led to points. And then, of course, you get the LSU Peach Bowl penalty where he was called for targeting. He was ejected. uh, And that was a very high profile penalty. So three of his four penalties in 2019 were very obvious, hurt the team. Uh, in in unnecessary ways and I think that's going to stick with people it stuck with me it stuck with me in 2019 and I think that's why unfortunately for him his really solid play in 2019 was probably overshadowed by a lot of uh, was overshadowed by those penalties and Oklahoma's fan base remember that a lot more and including me and so this is why I'm glad I went back and did this rewatch because I didn't remember how good of a player he was in 2019 for the majority of the season Uh, And so based on my grading, again, he was the second best DB on the team behind Parnell Motley. So 2019 was a good year. But again, the the penalties, just the dumb, dumb penalties that hurt his team, they stood out. So that brings me to 2020 this past year. And worth note, uh, nobody in 2020 got as many points as Buki or Parnell Motley got in 2019. But I know some of you might be thinking, wait a second, Oklahoma didn't play a full season in 2020. You're right. Oklahoma played 14 games in 2019, only played 11 in 2020. So if Oklahoma played three more games, I think that uh, some players would have probably gotten more points than Motley 
and Buki. So here is the uh, what you've all been waiting for, the 2020 ranking of all the players. Uh, I, I don't know if this is good podcasting or not, Grant. Who would you guess that I have as the, uh, the number one DB based on points in 2020? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I, I would assume it's Trey Brown, but a part of me, a part of me for whatever reason wants to say Fields. I don't know why, but it, just, beca- just because it's a surprise. This is interesting. Very interesting. So the number one graded player in 2020 is actually a guy who didn't, who didn't play a whole lot until midway through the year, Trey Norwood. Trey Norwood has nine points, and what helped us a lot was all of his interceptions. You get a point and a half for an interception. He had that pick six, and he just he did not make really any mistakes. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to his his grading for 2020. Trey Norwood, let me get to him real quick. He he had 14 good plays, so like not like a crazy amount of good plays, but he only had one bad play. But he also had four missed tackles, so that's five bad plays. Does is the is the is the egregious missed tackle on Brees Hall and Ames? Is that his one bad play? Well, I I had missed tackles aside from bad plays, so I can I I can, I can tell you his bad play. I can bring it up. Take me a second to. I mean, I don't I don't care that much. I just <laughs> it was in the Texas Tech game. Oh, I'll tell you what it was. I remember now. Um, it was uh, on the really long touchdown that the Texas Tech tight end got. Norwood, he got kind of turned around, awkward, bad, bad technique, and, and it, it cost him. He got burned for a touchdown. I gave him a, a negative one for that. Uh, in, a, in a game where he had two picks, uh, that was his one bad play. Other than that, and, oh, again, though, he had four missed tackles. So I guess technically he had five bad plays because he missed four tackles. Um, and, yes, I'm sure I, I counted him against uh, in an Iowa State game. He had one missed tackle, so that's probably one you're talking about. Uh, so Trey Norwood at the top of the list. Behind Trey Norwood at with 8.25 points, Woody Washington, a guy that came on late and played a lot. Behind Woody Washington with six points, sensing a theme here, DJ Graham. Now behind DJ Graham with five and a half points, Delarian Turner-Yell. So a guy, a starter, Delarian Turner-Yell with a good season. Then you get to Trey Brown with three, Jaden Davis with two. <laughs> Very limited playing time, but when he he played he was able to accumulate two points Robert Barnes Justin Broyles with one and a half Jeremiah Cradell, very little playing time he got a, a random half point and then you get to negatives and you get to Buki and Buki who had negative 0.75 so he was almost neutral and then Pat Fields minus 2.25 and so this entire rewatch really makes me think one, Pat Fields is going to need to do some work to, to, to play as many snaps as he's been playing the last couple of years uh, because he, he, was not as, he was not as good last year. I mean, he was really good in 2019, uh, but upon the rewatch, he was, he was not. And let me just, to be fair to him, I'll go to his numbers to break it down real fast. Pat Fields, Pat Fields. Only, I only six and a half good plays, three bad, four missed tackles, three and a half missed chances he so he was kind of the guy that had a lot of like he he was closer there but just couldn't make plays and a lot of that was the Iowa State game remember all the drop picks he had in the Iowa State game so that the, the Iowa State game was bad for Pat Fields was bad for Buki 
uh, yeah. You got something? Well, DJ Graham is the one in there that I'm most excited about because he didn't, he played, it's, he, like, I mean, outside of Cordell and whatever, but he didn't, what, he, like, he did, DJ Graham started, like, four one, games, two. I think? He didn't even start a game. I didn't even, I, I, I didn't even, uh, oh, he started the Cotton I Bowl. didn't even record a point for him until the Kansas game. So DJ Graham was at six and a half good things. Only I, I all year I deducted uh, a half point for a half against Iowa State in the Big Twelve title game. And I can't even remember what it was. I, I could go look it up, but no missed tackles. Um, so in one, two, three, four, five, five games. So I mean, again, like a lot of this is you play a lot of snaps, you have a lot more chances to make mistakes, but you also have a lot more chances to make good plays. Future first round picks. <laughs> yeah. You did. You did actually hear it here first, I think. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Woody Washington, um, he was fantastic in that Texas game. That really helped him a lot. He didn't really he didn't have any bad games. Uh, it, weirdly enough, the only negative game I, I counted was uh, against Missouri State. <laughs> he had a I, he had a, a negative. He had a mischance, a half a half of mischance. So <laughs> it was it was bas- basically nothing. Um uh, Let's see. Anything else? That's I think we'll forgive him for that game. That game. That game might as well just not even have happened. <laughs> that's that actually. And I like clearly. There's ones I could probably pick out, but that was the least consequential and least exciting OU game I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> it's it's unfortunate. Like it's it, it. You know, it's better that it happened than than didn't happen. I'm glad that it happened. Yeah. Let's never do last season ever again. Good lord. Yeah. Please. All right, I got to quickly wrap this up. Okay, just, but this is whole thing is about Buki. All right, so 2020, he had 12 good plays, seven bad plays, five missed tackles, one and a half missed chances. Uh, and the Iowa State game really tanked his grade. He had a negative five for that game. Just, he had three bad plays, two missed tackles, one missed chance. I gave him a half a point for decent coverage on an end zone pass play that might have prevented a touchdown. Uh, his best game was Kansas State. He had two points, uh, Texas, a point and a half. Kansas a point and a half and it should have been more at Kansas but that was the game that we all remember he had that interception but then he fumbled the ball back to Kansas which I deducted a point for that that was not good also Buki led the defensive backs in penalties in 2020 with eight penalties he had three pass interference one holding one personal foul one unsportsmanlike conduct one kick catch interference and one substitution infraction <laughs> that happened against TCU when you may remember he randomly ran on the field at the end of the first half when TCU was trying to kick a field goal and he was the 12th guy on the field which gave TCU an extra five yards but fortunately TCU still missed the kick uh, I, I took away a half a point because it, it wasn't clear if maybe a coach told him to run on the field and he was just Listen to a coach, so maybe it wasn't his fault, but uh, that was dumb. You know, all the penalties against Iowa State stood out. The penalty against Oklahoma State in Bedlam, where he got personal foul for that taunting that gave Oklahoma State a, fr- a free first down, and then led, of course, to points. Uh, after the Oklahoma State game, he missed the Baylor game. I, I think it, it was because of COVID protocols. A lot of guys missed that Baylor game. The next two games, he was available to play: Big Twelve title, Cotton Bowl. He did not start either of those games, and his snap count dwindled, and his snap count went down every single year. In 2018, he played 745 snaps, 2019, 666 snaps, 2020, only 429. So here's my final analysis, Grant. 
after completing the rewatch, I can say with confidence that Oklahoma's defensive backfield will be just fine without Brendan Radley Hiles in that room. I also believe Buki saw the writing on the wall and realized he was going to have to work really, really hard in order to keep a starting spot and in turn play a lot of snaps in 2021. Now, I know Trey Norwood's exit to the NFL in theory should have given Buki a little bit of confidence that he could win back that nickel job in 2021. But just my opinion, I think he wanted a fresh start somewhere else. And again, it's, it's just my opinion based on what I saw the last three years. I think Oklahoma's secondary room right now has way more talent than it did, obviously, in 2018. Definitely more talent than it had in 2019. And probably more talent than Oklahoma had last year, even with Trey Brown and Trey Norwood getting drafted. So I do wish Buki well. I do. I, I apologize for 2019 for not remembering how good he played that year. But I will not apologize for criticizing him for all of the dumb penalties he committed throughout his years at Oklahoma. They were dumb, and they hurt his team. But here's the thing, though. By all accounts, his teammates loved him. The coaches loved him. That means a lot more than what I think about him and what the fans think about him. And you know, that's what matters the most. Uh, but again, after rewatching every single game from 2018 to 2020, I have concluded that Buki transferring should not hurt Oklahoma secondary this upcoming year. There it is. I think you laid that all out pretty well. I think that's a good argument. Definitely some, some stuff I'll have to consider there. I will say from an emotional standpoint, after I saw the defensive backs in person at the spring game, Buki has, has drifted further and further from my mind ever since that game happened. So I will, I will say that. Um, but you know, hey, college football is an emotional sport. Sometimes we, uh, we let emotions kind of drive us and dictate us and that's okay sometimes all the time yeah not, not sometimes all the time and that's why again I put, I put the time in to do that because I wanted to be fair to the kid I want to be fair to him I mean because it was really easy to get super emotional with that guy and uh, again 2018 threw it out 2019 he was really good but I think it was overshadowed by a lot of dumb penalties that hurt his team and in 2020 he was he was he, he was one of the worst graded defensive backs on the team and he didn't have a bad year. Uh, he just kind of had he had one really bad game, one other not so great game, and a bunch of just kind of neutral whatever. And then he got he got his job taken at the end. He he wasn't starting anymore. And again, my opinion, I think he saw the writing on the wall. Uh, I know you got to get going here, Grant. Soon, do you want to touch on anything else, or do we got to get going? Uh, no. I mean, no. I mean, I think he did a good job. Um, the one thing I did want to say, like one of the big things I wanted to say, um. And this is totally not football related, um, but but clearly the the women's college world series is a big deal in Oklahoma and obviously in Norman as well. Um, and I just I just wanted to to throw out there that the women's college world series is a really good product. Um, it is by orders of magnitude more watchable than college baseball. Um, and that's really all I have to say about it. I, I've legitimately had fun watching fast pitch softball this season when it's been on. I think. With how with like how big the ball is and how small the fields are, or whatever it's just it's just like it's a good TV product. And for whatever reason, especially when there's a lot of slow mo, um, the skill is really put on display 
and and I think that is that's kind of a unique thing, like because you can. I mean, they have the camera. You can see the grips of the ball in their hands of the pitchers, and you can see the spin very clearly. And what they're, and I, I just, you know, I I appreciate that, and I and I understand how hard that probably is to put up the type of numbers that they are this season. And I think that's really cool. And I just wanted to say, it's a great product, and college baseball needs to do something because women's college World Series is just a lot better than what they're doing in baseball right now. Um, and also. A couple of months ago, when Porter Moser was hired as the bas- as, as OU's basketball coach, I think maybe I was the only one pouring a little bit of cold water on it, thinking, oh, hey, if we got this guy, then maybe there's something that we don't know that's not great. Everything after I said that, he is I, he's proving me wrong completely. I've never been more excited for OU basketball in my entire life. And I just wanted to put that out there. The way that he completely has rebuilt the roster... And make no mistake about it, that's an NCAA tournament team on paper. Absolutely. Um, is I think is really impressive, and I'm really fired up. And that's all I got. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for us today. Uh, oh, crap. Uh, I was gonna, we were going to announce a, a game we we're going to rewatch. We didn't even talk about that. Um, I know on the Facebook page, people brought up 08 Texas Tech. Uh, some of the games from the 2000s, maybe like the 2000... A&M game, I think, might have been brought up on the West of Everest Facebook page as maybe a, a game to rewatch. I, uh, oh, some of those Baylor classics. Harry says... Maybe we should do... A, how about... This one could be a little controversial. What if we do 2006 at Oregon? Oh. Uh, is there a full copy of that on YouTube somewhere? Not, I'm not 100% positive, but there is. I think that'd be an interesting that'll, one to do. That'll go down. That, that's another one of those games I, I didn't see because I was at college. And I remember I was on a bus uh, going to like Garden City, Kansas on a Saturday because we were playing fall ball. Uh, well, well, we'll figure it out. We, we can't, we don't have time to do it right now. Crap. Sorry, sorry about that. If you're listening to the very end to figure out what game we're re- rewatching, we don't have it because we forgot about that. Um, that being said, I can't commit to a new episode next week, but I think I can commit to a new episode two weeks from now. Does that sound like something you could do as well? Do you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll keep you updated on the West of Everest Facebook page. So until next time, for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest.